you have a copy of God's Word, uh, go ahead and turn, in, turn there with me to uh, Mark chapter 4. There are Bibles in the chairs if you don't have one that you are welcome to use. If you don't have a Bible with you at home, you can take that with you as well. We also have Mark journals that are out there on the, the table that are free to take with you. Mark chapter 4, we'll be in verses 35 through, 30, or through 41 today. So uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been in Mark's gospel since the fall. And we've been asking the question um, from every passage that we've been preaching from, who is Jesus? And, and, letting, and letting the text answer that for us. So we're not trying to put our filter on it. We're not, I'm not trying to put my own kind of take on who Jesus is. We're just letting the text tell us. So that's what we've been doing over these, uh, these past several months, and we'll do that again today. So Mark chapter 4, and I'll read for us verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you gather us, uh, not under our name, but under your name, that we can take one day out of Uh, of the seven that you give to us, and that we can rest and worship together as a body. So God, I pray now as we open your word and study it together, that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen the show on Netflix. It's been out for a while, I think, but it's called Doomsday Preppers. So just to explain to you, the title kind of explains it already, but but the show, it follows around different families from around the country and individuals uh, that are prepping themselves for an end-of-the-world scenario. And they all have their theories on how the world is going to end. And so during the show, they, 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 have, they set up, say, hey, this is what I'm preparing for. This is the type of doomsday that I'm preparing for. And then the show uh, evaluates them on a particular scale to say whether or not they're ready to do, to, to, for doomsday and how prepared they are or, or not. So of all the preppers in the episodes, every one of them is confident that they are prepared. They are prepared for anything. They are, they, they're, they're confident that the safest place in the world uh, during doomsday is their home or their property. That's it. It's safe. But out of all of the evaluations that are completed during these 
two seasons of this show, not one of these families or individuals passed. None of them got a perfect score. It didn't matter how much food they had stored up. It didn't matter how many weapons they were equipped with. It didn't matter, it didn't matter how, how much gold they had put away or how much medicine they had on hand. None of it was enough to keep them safe for very long. There was always a little kink in, in the armor. Well, in the early church, there, there's art that depicted the church in a certain way. And it was, it was art that depicted the church as a boat caught in a perilous storm out at sea. So the church, these artists would, would show, was in the most dangerous predicament one could think of. No supplies, no way of escape, completely helpless. It was their doomsday. But also in the scenes that are painted is Jesus in the midst of the boat, always. But also in the midst of the storm. Which reminded the church that there was nothing to fear, even in the midst of a storm. Now, maybe you've literally been in a boat in a storm. I've, I've been in that predicament before, and, and it was pretty terrifying. But I can, think, I can say that with, with confidence this morning that I think we've all experienced or will experience figurative storms. You may be in the middle of one right at this very moment. You may have walked in in a storm. And our text today answers the question for you, who is Jesus, in, the, in such a way that it brings peace even when these storms are raging in your life. Even when the wind is at its strongest and the waves are crashing down upon you to the point that you don't feel like you can ever come up for air. And it's this. This is how Jesus answers this question for you, is that he is with you. He's with you. And that the only place in which you are safe in the midst of the storm is with Him. So I want us to look at this truth today through three key players in the text. And those are in your worship guide there if you take notes. One is a raging sea. Two is a sleeping Savior. And then three is a terrifying power. So before we dive into these, these points here, I want us to, to just kind of uh, uh, remember where, we are, where we're at in the text and who's writing, uh, who's writing this text and what the, the context of the passage is. And so to give us some clarity, so we may have forgotten from um, the very first sermon. But remember, this is Mark recording what Peter saw as an eyewitness of Jesus. Okay? Mark is recording this from Peter's own mouth. So, but you also have to remember that Mark is a very direct writer as well. So he's not, he's not as detailed as someone like Luke is in his gospel, where Luke is writing what he says is a very detailed account. Mark, not so much. Mark is very quick. Mark is very to the point. And, but but when, when details show up, in the text, when Mark is writing, it makes us pause a little bit, or at least we should pause a little bit. 
because we want to take in these details because Mark is trying to reveal us, reveal to us something through what seem like minor details. So if you're just kind of reading through the text and you come across Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, you probably won't think much about these things. So in verse 35, you have Mark mentioning the time of day and the specific destination in which they were headed. So Mark says, it was evening and we were headed across to the other side of the sea. And then you have in verse 36, he, has, he just mentions that other boats were with them. There was other boats around. It wasn't just a single boat, but there was other boats with them. And then in verse 37, the specifics of the storm and what it was doing to the boat are mentioned. So Mark doesn't just say, oh, there's just, there was just this massive storm. It was terrible. Mark gives us some details about it and what was happening to the boat in the storm. And then in verse 38, the specifics of not only where Jesus was sleeping, but what he was sleeping on were mentioned. So Mark writes, he was in the stern asleep, so he's in the front of the boat, a boat asleep on the cushion. So it must have been one cushion in, in, in the boat, and Mark wanted us to know that, and Jesus was sleeping on that particular cushion. So this, this, Mark does all this to remind his readers that this is a firsthand account. In, in first century writing, irrelevant details like what cushion somebody was sleeping on or, or what other boats were around them or what damage was happening to this particular boat, irrelevant details like this were a sign of an eyewitness, someone who is actually on the scene. And this is what Mark is wanting us to see. He's telling us, look, Peter was actually on the boat with Jesus that day. Peter felt the strong winds against his face. He was overwhelmed by the waves. He was soaked to the bone. He experienced the fear coursing through his body when he recognized that they were not getting out of this storm. But he also experienced the disappointment at seeing this man whom he thought was someone special, asleep in the midst of it all. So knowing in hindsight, so, so uh, Peter's telling this story to Mark, so this is after the fact, not during the fact. Peter is telling this story to Mark, knowing in hindsight that uh, it was wrong of him to have this sort of disappointment with Jesus Um, most would not have included that in their retelling of the story just to save face. I I wouldn't have. I I wouldn't have said, look at this foolish mistake I made of not knowing that the Son of God was in the stern of the boat with me. Or at least maybe you would have made it more humorous so you wouldn't look as foolish and it's just a common mistake that everybody makes and you think, you know, here's old Jesus. You know how Jesus likes to sleep. He was asleep in the midst of a storm. Can you believe that? We had to wake him up. That's not what Mark does or Peter does. And so we know that this was something that truly took place, that was witnessed by human beings because these irrelevant, seemingly irrelevant details are mentioned. Well, not only does Mark record Peter's irrelevant details, he also records for us uh, some significant details 
events taking place. And the first one is with a raging sea in verses 35 through 38. Now, throughout the Bible, the sea has uh, been a constant centerpiece of turmoil and obstacle for God's people. A symbol of destruction and opposition and fear. But it's also been where God's people have seen God clearly act on their behalf. So in order to understand the significance of what is happening in our text this morning, we have to see the role in which the sea has played in the Old Testament. So I just want to give you just give you a few glimpses of the sea in the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of creation, it was the sea that God divided to allow dry ground to appear on behalf of humanity. And then if you skip forward just a few chapters in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, it's when sin overwhelmed the earth, God sent the sea via the flood back over the whole earth and all living things. And then you skip forward into Exodus chapter 14, God saves his people from their enemy by parting the sea so they could cross safely onto dry ground. And then he uses the sea to crush their enemy, the pursuing Egyptian army. And this is how the psalmist records this scene for us in Psalm 106, verse 9. He says, God rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. God rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. So much like Jesus in our text, isn't it? So when Jesus rebukes the sea here in Mark chapter 4, he was demonstrating that he has authority just as the God of the Old Testament had authority. That's what he's pointing to. And just as God had uh, power over humankind and Israel's age-old enemy, the sea, so did Jesus. And so throughout Mark's gospel, you may have noticed this, the sea is a constant backdrop. It's as if a movie scene was, was being created here, and they just keep cutting back to the sea, cutting back to the sea, cutting back to the sea. So in your mind, you kind of know, something's going to happen on the sea. I just have this feeling that something terrible is about to happen. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, uh, Mark records, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he calls his first disciples. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he went out to the sea and he taught the crowds. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And then chapter 4, verse 1, and he began to teach beside the sea. And then here in our text, again, he's in the sea. And then he goes on to describe the sea, the setting of the sea, ten more times in his gospel he brings it up. So what Mark wants us to recognize is this connection between the Old Testament works of God and Jesus' work in the New Testament. He's bringing this together for his readers. So this isn't the first raging sea Jesus has dealt with, and nor will it be his last. Well, in his humanity... Jesus gets tired, just like we get tired. 
and Jesus needs sleep. So in this next scene, while it's titled A Sleeping Savior, I guess we could have the subtitle be uh, a, a very present Savior at the same time. Look at verses 38 through 41. Read this for us again. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So in the midst of the storm, the disciples are freaking out, to say the least. And their first response is not to paddle harder. They know that they are in peril. They know that they are not getting out of this. Their first response is to run to Jesus, which is perfectly appropriate and the right thing to do. They knew Jesus had some sort of power. But it wasn't, they didn't approach Jesus like this. They didn't say, Jesus, wake up, save us from the storm. We know that you can calm the storm. We have faith in God that you can calm the storm. That's not what the disciples said. They wake Jesus and say to him, Teacher, do you not care? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, that we are dying? How often we ask this question of Jesus too, don't we? Jesus, do you not care that I'm in this hard predicament at work, and it doesn't look like it's ever going to let up. Jesus, do you not care that I'm single and that I may never find a spouse? Jesus, do you not care that I can't do what I used to do in my younger years, that my body is broken and weak? Jesus, do you not care that my child is sick? Do you not care that I'm lonely? that I'm depressed, that I'm anxious, that my child uh, is lost or, or my spouse is lost or I don't have enough money in the bank to cover the bills that I need to pay this month. Do you not care? And in these times, I think it's really easy for us to imagine that Jesus is asleep, that for some reason he's aloof to your pain, that he's checked out of your suffering. But let me just remind you that the reality is that Jesus cares for you more deeply than anyone else in your life. He's the only one who promises things like this. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll never betray you. I'll never let you down. He's the only one who can promise I am with you to the very end of the age, which simply just means he's not going anywhere, ever. He's always with you. So no one in your life can say that with any amount of confidence. I don't care what Hollywood tries to teach us or tell us. No one can say that except Jesus. Storms and even people at times are indifferent towards you. 
They don't care. But not Jesus. He is always filled with love towards you. Even in the storms he allows you to walk through, he is filled with love towards you. This is why the psalmist can write in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is in the valley of the shadow of death. This is the worst that it can get for you. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now notice how Jesus responds to their fear in verse 40. He doesn't say, there, there, my dear disciples. Let me just rub you on the back here and comfort you a little bit. I understand how you're feeling right now. And that's going, it's going to pass here soon. The storm's going away. No. He asked him, and I think some of us would read this and go, that's, that's a bit insensitive, Jesus. That's not a safe place for me. But he asked them, why are you so afraid? Do you still not have faith? And literally that means Jesus is asking them, do you still not have faith in God? Why are you so afraid? Now, considering the circumstances, it seems like this is an obvious answer. Why are we so afraid? We are about to drown, and you don't care. But what Jesus is trying to get them to recognize is that even the disciples' presuppositions, what they've thought about Jesus, about who he is, are all wrong. They think because they have this miracle worker uh, amongst them that nothing bad is supposed to happen to them. And maybe that's how you feel sometimes about being a Christian. That because you have trusted in Jesus, uh, you're not supposed to have bad things happen to you. That the Christian life is supposed to be cushy, that it's supposed to be comfortable, that it's supposed to have this this kind of facade of safety around you that, that our world likes to paint for us. And so if you experience any sort of suffering, well, then that's proof that Jesus doesn't love me. Or even worse, that's proof that God doesn't actually exist. Because he wouldn't let his people go through suffering. But what Jesus is saying here is, I do allow people I love to go through storms for the sheer purpose of drawing them closer to me, which is the safest place you will ever be, even in the the midst of the worst storm that you walk through. And Jesus tells you, and you have no reason to be afraid. None. Now, before Jesus calms the storm, 
His disciples are afraid. They are afraid of this out-of-control storm. But after the storm is calmed, and now let me just remind you that when Jesus calms the storm, it's not just this like after a storm where if you've ever been to the... uh, to the beach during when a storm passes through and the, you can see that the waves are crashing. And as the storm kind of lets up, you can see kind of the, the waves kind of still kind of just kind of gently kind of go down. And after a while, it's calm again. Now, when Jesus calms the storm, it's immediate. The, the, Mark tells us there was a great calm that comes upon the sea, that it just immediately stops. It's a storm and then there's not. There's no just gently calming down. So after the storm is calmed, Mark tells us the disciples are not afraid. They are terrified. Great fear comes upon them. Why? Well, it's because they're met with a terrifying power. Look at verses 39 through 41. So Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea. He said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we've all experienced the feeling when we get the warning on our phone that inclement weather is heading our way. You kind of hear that the, the emergency sound go off. And that sense of fear that during those times, um, the, the reality is the, the reason why we have that fear is that we cannot control the storms. We cannot make the tornadoes stop coming our way. We cannot calm the winds that are possibly going to fall and crush our our home or our vehicles or or our loved ones even we can do nothing we are out of control is how we feel this is exactly what the disciples were experiencing they felt the uncontrollable nature of the storm now if you know me um well enough to know that i'm I'm, i'm a little bit afraid of heights actually a lot afraid of heights. I don't like heights at all, but, but, I, but, I, but I do fly, so I'm not terrified of flying, but I don't really like to fly. But I know that when I'm on an airplane, and maybe you have this same, maybe I'm not the only one here, when I'm on an airplane, sometimes uh, another pilot is on the airplane with you, and he's like sitting in, uh, in, the, in the regular seats like everybody else, and he has his uniform on because he's getting taken to another airport so he can fly another p- plane. I am always really comforted by that. And, and the reason being is when we do hit that turbulence, all I do is I just look to that pilot. I'll just look over at him and just to see, like, is this messing with him at all? Because if he starts freaking out, that's when I start freaking out. But if he's calm, I'm just like, all right, I'll just freak out a little bit and just watch him. This is the same thing that's happening here. These are fishermen that are on this boat. These are men who have experienced the sea their entire life. So they know storms. They know what kind of storms are passing through. They know if this is going to be just a little bit of a storm, it's going to give us a little, a little bit of a scare, but we're, we're going to make it through. But this storm, this storm they knew. We are done. 
This is it. This is the end of our life. This is the most dangerous storm that we have ever been involved in. And the way that we are going to die is the boat is going to be capsized and we are going to drown. They were not just being dramatic here. They were telling the truth. They were were going to die. They knew that. Yet asleep in the stern of the boat lay a power more terrifying and more uncontrollable than a mere storm ever could be. And the disciples had no idea. This is how God describes his power over the sea in Job chapter 38. He's describing it to Job. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. That is a terrifying power. That is a God who has given the sea the most one of, the, one, of the, one of the places that is more unders, undiscoverable than even space itself. God has placed his borders around it. And it's not until after the storm has been calm that the disciples realize this. Look at verses 40 and 41 again. Jesus says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great Fear, or you could say they were terrified and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they were afraid of the storm. They knew at, at, at best the storm was going to kill them, was going to drown them. But they were terrified of Jesus. Because Jesus has just revealed to them that this isn't some mere man with them, but the very God of the universe. And of course they're terrified. Of course they're terrified. They react just as those of the Old Testament did when they came face to face with the reality of God's awesome power, and they are left asking the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? Because we don't know at this point. Which tells us they thought Jesus was someone else and not God incarnate, at least at this point. But notice in verse 41 that Mark asked this question rhetorically. He doesn't give his readers an answer at this point. They're left with the evidence that's been laid before them thus far. And Mark says that's enough. That's enough to know that uh, who Jesus is up to this point. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Don't you, don't you, do you not yet have faith in God? Have you not seen my awesome power already? Are you not aware that the kingdom of God has come because I am now here on this earth? And I think we could ask the same questions to ourselves, couldn't we? Who then is Jesus to you? How would you answer this question for the disciples if you were there? 
How have you been taught to see Jesus? Maybe it's growing up in the church and you've always heard these these you know fantastic stories about Jesus, but the dots have never really connected for you, or you had this kind of false idea that Jesus is this kind of white, long-haired hippie because you've seen all of these pictures all of your life, and that's who Jesus is to you? Who is Jesus to you? What are your presuppositions about him that may be false? Because just as the disciples are, lear- are learning, he may not be who you think he is. Because if you're not getting your definition from the Bible then the Jesus that you are struggling to believe in or that you're having doubts in is not the correct Jesus because it's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. So Bonnie read for us from Jonah chapter 1 and this morning's Scripture reading. And in this Old Testament text, we see a story that is similar to the one that we just read in Mark's Gospel here in Mark chapter 4. So you have the prophet Jonah who is... Um, disobeying God, which is why he is in this boat. He's trying, to, he's trying to go the opposite direction of God's will. God tells him to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel. Jonah says, absolutely not. Those people are wretched. I'm not going to them. So I'm going to go the opposite direction. And then God sends a storm on this boat that Jonah finds himself in. Jonah's also asleep in this boat while everyone else is freaking out. Everyone else is trying to paddle harder. Everyone else is throwing cargo overboard. Everyone else is praying to their God while Jonah is peacefully asleep. And the only way to bring peace is by throwing Jonah in the raging sea. Jonah knows why this sea is raging. As soon as he wakes up, he knows this is not good. This is not good. He says to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. He was confident in God's power to still that sea. But essentially what Jonah has just said is the only way that God's wrath can ever be satisfied is through a sacrifice. That's the only way the sea will be calmed is through the sacrifice of another. So Mark is foreshadowing this for us in Jesus' own life here. So if you look at Mark's, uh, Mark's account here in the context of the other gospel accounts, which you should be doing, Matthew's gospel records for us Jesus referring to himself in this way, and it's the same timeline. Mark just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't bring this up. But in Matthew's gospel, Jesus refers to himself in this way. He says, one greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying that one day soon, he is going to enter into the ultimate storm. The storm of God's wrath on the cross. And the only way that storm can be calmed is if Jesus himself jumps in head first and does it for you. No one has to throw him in. He does it on his own initiative. That is the Jesus of the Bible. 
And because Jesus is willing to take on the storm of God's wrath for you and for me, how much more will he take on the smaller storms that you are faced with? So this is Jesus reminding us the only place that you're safe is with him in the boat with you. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful that we are not in this boat by ourselves. that it is your Son who is always with us, that it's your Son that will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us, that he is always at our side, even until the end of the age. Father, I pray that you would erase whatever presuppositions that may be false, that may be um, um, making us struggle to see the Jesus of the Bible. That you would get rid of those and that you would replace them with the truth of your word. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.